0: Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hustle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osborne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. rock This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Michael Vick are insane. It took just one search warrant for him to go from one of the NFL's most iconic players to its most vilified. He bankrolled a dogfighting operation on his property in rural Virginia. He bred his dogs to do a very specific task. To fight and kill. And when a dog couldn't fight anymore, it had only one fate. A bullet in the head and a shallow grave out back. But before Michael Vick's extracurricular activities were discovered, he was part of some of the greatest sports moments in history. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Crouton Crusaders MK2. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to FSN Pittsburgh's broadcast of the Pittsburgh Pirates win over the Houston Astros in a nearly five-hour game. And why would I play you that specific slice of 16-inning cheese, could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest moments in sports on April 25th, 2007. And that was the day that investigators discovered the bodies of eight dogs buried just below ground level out back behind the Bad News Kennels, Michael Vick's top secret dogfighting operation. On this episode, dogfighting rings, shallow graves, search warrants, and Michael Vick. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season six, Sportsland. January 4th, 2000. The atmosphere at the Louisiana Superdome was electric. The mixture of euphoria and mayhem was intoxicating. Nearly 80,000 people crammed inside and they were all there to watch him play. Michael Vick was the best quarterback in college football. He played the position like a running back, a running back who could sling the ball downfield. The fans couldn't get enough. It was like they were watching the position in the game get redesigned in real time. But in his eyes, he was still just a kid from Newport News, a place where he learned to fend for himself as soon as he could walk. His hometown was rife with vice, drugs, sex workers, gunfights, robberies, cruelty of all kinds. That's not a knock on his mother who raised him. She gave him everything and worked her ass off to provide for her kids. But what kind of man leaves this woman in the projects with four kids, only coming back when he was in a drunken rage? Michael was never taking that man's name, Bodie. It was a corny ass name anyway. He was Vic, Michael Vic. His mom was strong and she deserved this. Michael was gonna provide for her the way that his dad never could. That's what a man does. If Michael was gonna eat steak, those around him were gonna eat steak too. That's why he went to Virginia Tech, 285 miles from Newport News. He brought some of his crew with him, but it was hard to adjust. His days were all about practice and playbooks. He wasn't sure he'd ever fit in. That all changed when Michael got the starting job as a redshirt freshman. His coach understood him, understood where he came from. Michael was allowed to be himself, and he excelled. He scored three touchdowns in his first game and never stopped dominating. He led the Hokies to win after win after win and they went undefeated. Michael Vick was the most hyped player in college football, even if he still couldn't afford nice clothes or food and even if his mom was still living in the projects. Michael couldn't wait to get to the pros and then he would finally get his and his mom would get hers and his boys would get theirs. On this night, Playing the Sugar Bowl at the Louisiana Superdome, Michael accounted for 323 of Virginia Tech's 503 yards of offense all by himself. Each time the ball snapped, the whole world slowed down. It was the only time he felt totally in control. And although the Hokies lost that game and thus the national championship, Michael Vick knew he had just experienced the most important night of his life. He returned to Virginia a hero. That he began the next season a hero, The Sugar Bowl loss was in the past. He was moving on, excelling, dominating. During a throwaway game against unranked Pittsburgh, Michael got the snap and everything slowed down for him like it always did. He gripped the ball tightly in his hands. He dropped back. His eyes scanned the field. He found his receiver. With the ball in his left hand, his throwing hand, he cocked his arm back to make a dramatic pass. And as he did, he felt his leg twist ever so slightly. And suddenly, he dropped to the turf. The pain was searing. He winced and grabbed at his leg with his hands. A high ankle sprain. Dangerous for any quarterback, but especially for one who used his legs like Michael Vick did. The injury put him out of the Heisman Trophy running, which he found to be a relief. The pressure to perform and put up big numbers was gone. After recovering from his injury, Michael led the Hokies to another bowl game, and it was a fitting closing act. With two years left of eligibility, Michael had to go. His coach knew it, and everyone around him knew it. Michael couldn't stand to see his mother, his brother, and his sister still living in that three-bedroom on Ridley Circle. The first thing he was going to do was buy his mom a home and a car. That's all he could think about when the phone rang on draft night and some guy named Coach Reeves told him he was headed to Atlanta. Mike didn't know much about Atlanta. He knew about the parties in Atlanta and the clubs, but he didn't know Atlanta. Atlanta was a long way from Newport News. Besides, Mike just wanted a backyard, a big backyard where he could ride his ATVs. Atlanta wasn't exactly conducive to all-terrain vehicles, but it was steeped in history. The city was home to some of the greatest black athletes of all time, Jackie Robinson, Hank Aaron. Mike's coaches asked if he wanted to meet Hammer and Hank, or even the activist and former mayor, Andrew Young, a dude who marched with Martin Luther King Jr. Former Philadelphia Eagles quarterback Randall Cunningham kept reaching out too. But Michael didn't bother with any of it. Sure, he appreciated the history, but he was too busy being Michael Vick, quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons. And life was good. He had a contract with Nike. He had a top-selling jersey and a whole posse by his side. This is how it felt to be famous, a star. Even the Falcons owner, Arthur Blank, was at his beck and call. The man who founded Home Depot loved nothing more than getting Michael whatever he needed. King's command respect. January 4th, 2003. Green Bay, Wisconsin. There's something about this day, January 4th. Three years earlier, on the same day, Michael achieved college superstardom at the Superdome. Now, he was about to reach professional superstardom status at Lambeau Field the NFL's most historic venue. This was the place where Vince Lombardi roamed the sidelines, the home of Bart Starr and now of Brett Favre. 65,000 people packed into this frozen football tundra. Michael hated the cold, but he loved shutting all those people up. He dropped back for his first pass and everything fell silent. The deafening crowd, the chaos, it all stopped. Right War Dunn's chest, 17 yards, boom, another completion, touchdown. Michael was unstoppable. It was late in the second quarter, and the two-minute warning sounded. Michael took the snap and started rolling to his right. He saw the guy in the corner of his eye, a barreling lineman charging towards him. Mike did all he could do. He shoved him down and escaped. When he'd been on the streets of Newport News, 285-pound defenders no longer seemed scary. So Michael cut across the middle of the field, bursting all the way down to the Packers' 28-yard line. It was a huge gain, setting up a field goal. The Falcons staged a shocking upset over the Packers, 27 to seven. Michael Vick came into Lambeau Field and didn't just win, he dominated. From there, the good times only got better. There was a saying back in Newport News, you either ball, jail, or die and Michael was certainly balling. The best day of his life was when he sat across from Falcons owner Arthur Blank and signed his name to the largest contract in NFL history, 10 years and $130 million. Holy shit. This was enough money for him, his mom, his auntie, his siblings, his boys, and all of their kids too. Michael was on the cover of the Madden video game. His number seven jersey was everywhere. The NFL was Michael Vick's league. At the 2005 NFC Championship in Philadelphia, a Super Bowl berth was on the line. Donovan McNabb was on the other side of the field. Michael knew him from college. He shadowed Donovan and he leaned on him for advice. By the end of this game, one of them would become the third black quarterback to ever play in a Super Bowl. They were changing the position forever. But on this night, Michael wasn't in a celebratory mood. He was just trying to survive. Before the game, Donovan McNabb saw Michael all bundled up and told him he had already lost. McNabb was right. Michael didn't stand a chance. He didn't even see Javon Curris coming. The freak plowed into Michael from his blindside. He only ran the ball four times and the Eagles kept coming at him. It was an unforgivable onslaught. Michael Vick's Falcons didn't score a single point in the second half but Michael didn't let the loss bother him. He was happy to see McNabb go to the Super Bowl. Besides, his boys were throwing him an end-of-season bash. The party was gonna go all week long. There would be women and alcohol to ease the pain, and the worst loss of his career would just fade away like smoke from his blunt. At that moment, Michael Vick thought the party would never end, but the party always ends, and the guests all start to leave. And then someone flicks on a light, and the wreckage that's suddenly in plain view ...is nothing short of horrifying. The schedule for an NFL player is rigorous. There's practice, travel, meetings, film sessions, more practice. Coaches want to plan their players every move and keep them on strict regimens. You can't get in trouble if you're spending all of your time at the team facility. That's how the thinking goes anyways, but today was Tuesday, the only guaranteed off day of the week for an NFL player. And Michael Vick was taking advantage of that off day by traveling back to Virginia with his crew. They were all there with him, all his friends, making their way through airport security. Most of Mike's teammates were hanging back in Atlanta because practice was always first thing Wednesday morning. Brian Finneran, one of the team's best receivers, asked Michael the same question every week. Did he want to come over and watch Monday Night Football? Brian said he liked scouting the other teams. Scout the other team? Dude, that's what they made you do at the facility. Watch the same plays over and over again with the sound off. Some coach pausing it every two seconds to talk about splitting the A-gap or finding holes in the cover two zone defense. It was boring as shit. Do you know how Michael Vick broke the cover two zone defense? He tucked the ball under his arms and ran. Besides, he had better things to do, like live it up with his friends. And that's what he was on his way to do today, on one of his cherished off days during the 2004 season. As his crew passed through the other side of the TSA checkpoint, one of the guys saw a watch that looked like Michael's, so he grabbed it. And then they boarded the AirTran flight. And that was Michael's favorite endorsement deal. It was even better than Nike or being on the cover of Madden. Free flights for him and everyone in his crew. A literal ticket to the world, or to Virginia anyways. When the plane landed in Virginia, Michael's phone blew up. A voicemail from his coach, Jim Mora. A voicemail from a surveillance team. A voicemail from the police. Turns out, the watch that one of his friends snatched from the conveyor belt wasn't Michael's. It belonged to a TSA agent. Michael told everyone to chill on this mistake. He'd return it tomorrow once he was back in Atlanta. That was before all the bottles of Hennessy, before the dozens of blunts, before the stripteases and total debauchery. The next morning, Michael staggered back to the plane. Every time he dry heaved, his head throbbed a little harder. Returning some guy's watch wasn't at the top of his to-do list. He needed to drag his ass onto the plane and get the fuck back to the field. Practice was in two hours. When Michael finally staggered into the stadium, Coach Morrow was waiting. Coach Morrow was furious. Where was that watch? Why were people in Michael's crew swiping shit from airport security? Didn't he realize what a fucking big deal this was? Didn't those guys realize how much Michael had to lose? Michael assured him it was all good. He'd figure it out. He'd forget to return the watch when the plane landed, but he'd do it after practice. But after practice, Michael was running late for dinner at his favorite steakhouse. And the watch would have to wait. It took days for Michael to return it, and more days meant more chats with Coach Moore and more warnings about the guys he was hanging out with. Michael had been through those conversations before. Coach Reeves was always telling him to look out for himself. Michael loved Coach Reeves. They met once per week, talked about life, fatherhood, and adulthood. Michael wanted a family. He met Kiafa in 2002 and wanted to give her the life that a woman deserved. The same kind of life he was giving his mom now. But Coach Reeves went a little far sometimes. He'd been in the NFL for 45 years, 12 as a player, and 33 as a head coach. He knew how it could end for guys like Michael. The schemers, the fraudsters, the hangers-on. He even called Mike's friend, Qantas, and told him to keep Mike's interests in mind. One careless mistake could take down Michael's career. Don't expose him, Coach Reeves said. Do you hear me? Michael's friend didn't follow the unsolicited advice. He wondered if Peyton Manning's coach called Peyton's boys and told them to watch themselves. For Michael, he didn't come this far just to leave his crew behind. They all got a key to Moonlight Drive, his hideaway in rural Surrey County, Virginia. Moonlight Drive had acres of land for ATVs, for outdoor parties, and for the bad news kennels. Michael loved dogs ravenous dogs they made him feel safe and protected but he couldn't have any as a kid not in public housing so he kept his dogs on the street in the alleyway it was what a man did the guys who ran the streets always had bulldogs and pit bulls those motherfuckers were mean they could rip you apart michael vick saw a lot of dog fighting as a kid it was part of the culture in newport news And these fights were insane. Guys drinking 40s and throwing bills, lighting up J's. The police didn't give a shit. They just drove right on by. And nobody ever got in trouble. For a while, at least. Hell, you were more likely to get hassled by just walking down the street. One of the biggest guys in Newport was Tony Taylor. He took Michael to the fights early, showed him how things were done. And when Michael and his friend wanted to start their own kennel, they knew where to turn. Tony was with Michael almost every day from April through June, 2001, teaching him which dogs to target and how to train them. You gotta get a dog that goes for the legs, he said. Michael's stable of dogs that he was fighting grew to 15. That's when he sent Tony on a mission. He needed a place to house these beasts, somewhere private. The reports were all over the local news. Dog fighting rings busted left and right, one in Chesapeake Bay just recently. But you know why those guys got caught? because they weren't discreet. So Tony found a place. Moonlight Drive was what Michael always wanted, big enough to house not just all of his friends, but also all of his dogs. They built barns, kennels, and an infirmary out back. They were staging areas for fights. The bad news kennels took their dogs all across Virginia and the Carolinas. But discretion was key, and Michael's friends always set things up. Michael wasn't sure who the other dudes were who showed up to fight, but he didn't ask. Michael just bankrolled the whole operation. Money gave him that power. Hold up. We're about to get into an especially gruesome and disturbing part of this story. The graphic depictions of dog-on-dog violence and man-on-dog violence can be a real tough slog. So if you're easily bothered by that kind of thing, we don't blame you. We kind of are too. We're just letting you know you may want to skip ahead a few minutes. All right, here we go. One of Michael's friends would lead the pit bulls in by the collars. they have been training all week. They were taken to opposite sides of the room where they were held back. You could tell they couldn't wait for the moment that they were set free. Their bodies were tense, their muscles rigid, their mouths were shut tight, and their ears were popped forward. They were both ready to do what had to be done to walk out of that room. They were both ready to emerge, battered, but victorious, and they'd get the chance to do it any moment now, Ready. Set, go. The dogs were on each other in a split second, tearing at each other's flesh, barking and growling while on the offensive, and then horrifically whimpering each time they were bit by the other. Thick gobs of saliva oozed from their bloody mouths. Shit. One of Michael's dogs was down and couldn't get up. His hind legs were snapped in two. He struggled on the floor, just wailing over and over a high-pitched moan. Blood all over the barn floor. And the animal was in so much pain, so much distress, so much... Michael's friend's pistol put this one down, right between the eyes. The poor bastard didn't know it hit him. Michael witnessed the whole thing. His buddy pulled the trigger and the gun went off and the dog hit the floor. Other dogs didn't die so easily. Some were hosed down and electrocuted. Some were hanged with a nylon cord wrapped around their neck and strung up around a two-by-four nail between two trees. Some flailed and kicked and tried to scream as their heads were held in five-gallon buckets of water and they slowly drowned. And some were simply slammed into the ground by Michael and his crew over and over until their backs broke or their necks snapped. It made him a little uneasy, but he knew that this was how the business got done. And that's what Tony always told him. If they can't fight, They can't make money. They become a sunk cost at a drag on the business. What do you think happens to a horse when it can't race anymore? These dogs are bred for one thing, to fight. There was a spot out back beyond the barns where they buried their decaying fighters. This didn't happen too often, maybe seven or eight times, but when it did, it was taken care of. There was no need to clean up all the blood or do some deep sanitization. This was way out beyond the house and seemingly all civilization. Besides, this is a dog-fighting ring. There's no place for the squeamish. Michael didn't like to bring Kiafa or the kids around here. They didn't need to know about this. Nobody did. Not the Falcons, not the NFL. This was Michael's world. A world far away from the public stage. A world where he could still be the streetwise kid from Newport News, solely now with tens of millions of dollars in his bank account. That was untouchable money. Unfuckwithable money. Or so, he thought. In late 2006, the honeymoon was officially over. The Atlanta Falcons were in the midst of another disappointing season, and the 70,000 people packed into the Georgia Dome on this late November Sunday were pissed off. The New Orleans Saints had just come into town and beat the Falcons down 31-13. to It was the Falcons' fourth straight loss. Michael was used to the booing. He was the face of the franchise. You don't become the highest-paid player in the NFL without shouldering the blame when things go wrong. But the criticism was becoming too much. Michael Vick was an All-American, three-time Pro Bowler. The Falcons were one of the worst franchises in the NFL when he first arrived. And Now look at them. Michael put the Falcons on the map. He did that. Yet the scrutiny never ended. Some days it was an anonymous scout questioning his ability to play quarterback. Other days it was a coach needling him about his posse. And then there were the fans. Just fair weather assholes. Michael was sick of it. He took down Brett Favre at Lambeau Field. He played in the NFC Championship game just two years ago. The Falcons invested $130 million into him. Michael Vick was Arthur Blank's human money printing press, and the money just kept flowing in as long as he was under center. One of Michael's favorite parts about being a football player was interacting with the fans, giving kids like him the role model that he lacked growing up. Michael's little corner of Virginia had a history of producing athletes. The NFL Hall of Famer Bruce Smith is from Norfolk. Alan Iverson is from Hampton. Neither of them forgot where they came from. Same with Michael. There's a reason why he announced he was entering the NFL draft from Newport News' Boys and Girls Club. But Atlanta was not Newport News. It was like the fans were rooting for Michael's failures. They hated him on sports radio, and they ripped him on ESPN. On this day, at the Georgia Dome, he had had enough. All it took was one barb to set him off. Hey, Algie, you suck! Algie Crumpler was one of the best tight ends in the league. Were fans really coming into their house and disrespecting them like that? Michael looked up. Some jackass with a Saints jersey shouted from the stands. But right next to him was a Falcons fan. And they were both screaming, you suck. At the best tight end in team history. Michael felt the anger percolate in his veins. Fuck this guy. His middle fingers went up. Both of them. First the left, and then the right. An hour later, Michael's phone rang. It was Reggie Roberts, the Falcon's PR guy. He wanted to know if Michael flipped off the crowd. Michael confessed that he did, but he didn't think anyone saw it. Reggie called Michael on his bullshit. There were people everywhere, and cameras too, and this was going to be a problem. A dark cloud hung over Michael's head. A few months later, it was still there when he walked into a Miami airport. January was typically the time of year when Michael Vick made himself a household name all over again, national championship games, playoff wins, the NFC championship. But in January of 2007, he was busy getting hassled by TSA. One of the screeners tried to take his water bottle away. Michael swatted at the guy's hand. This was his water bottle and he fucking liked it. And He wasn't gonna throw it away. This wasn't a line of scrimmage and Michael didn't have the ball in his hands. He had no control. TSA took the bottle, fine, joke was on them, stupid bastards, he didn't even use the thing for water. It was a secret compartment in that bottle that Michael used to store his stuff. He held it up and showed them, mostly because he wanted to underscore that they were all stupid. That was the wrong move. The agents inspected the water bottle and thought they saw remnants of marijuana in the secret compartment, so they filed a police report. It was far from the most damaging report filed against Michael Vick that year. He was exonerated when the water bottle was tested and there was no marijuana found. If only it were that easy, though, to get out of everything. April 25th, 2007. It was one of those perfect spring days. Michael Vick was fully settled in Georgia. Duluth, to be exact. One of Atlanta's tiny suburbs. He was a member of the local country club. After all these years, he had an excuse to use the golf clubs that Coach Reeves gifted to him. Michael was an inspiration to an entire generation of black athletes, the Allen Iverson of football. But little did he know, he was a Target, 520 miles north. At Michael's place up on Moonlight Road in Smithfield, Virginia, Jim Knorr could hear the dogs barking before we saw them. Dogs didn't bring the cops here, but they brought Jim Knorr here. Five days earlier, police in Hampton, Virginia, arrested Devon Bodie outside a nightclub for selling weed. Devon, like he always did, name dropped his cousin, Michael Vick. He was proud to tell police he lived in Michael's house. That's why the cops showed up at Moonlight Drive, but it's not why Noor was called in. Noor was a senior special agent for the Department of Agriculture, and he was asked to join the scene with very specific instructions. Find the barking dogs. The sounds were getting louder and Noor kept walking past the basketball courts, past the fence, and then he saw it. A two-story house in the middle of the woods was painted black. There was a training shed to the left in an infirmary out back. The dogs were caged everywhere, about 70 of them total, mostly pit bulls. When Nor and his team walked up to the second floor, they saw the layout, folding chairs and an upended five-gallon plastic bucket with a canine tooth on top and the odor was repugnant. They moved out back and discovered eight dead dogs buried just beneath the surface of the ground. Michael Vick's lawyer wanted to know one thing. Was he fighting dogs? Because if he was, they could mount a defense. His lawyer just needed a straight answer. Michael wasn't about to give himself up like that. Lying to Arthur Blank, though, that was the hardest part. Blank's unyielding support of Michael never wavered, even as the rest of the NFL started to doubt him. When Michael told Blank that, no, he wasn't involved and that was that, Blank never questioned him. Michael repeated the same lie when he sat across from NFL commissioner Roger Goodell in a conference room at NFL headquarters on Park Avenue in New York City. The league's iconic shield was displayed everywhere. Goodell told Michael that he was about protecting that shield. Nothing was more important than the integrity of the game. And with this latest bit of news, the integrity of the NFL was continuing to take a beating. Star cornerback Adam Pacman Jones had been arrested for drug possession and throwing a punch at a police officer. Star wideout Plaxico Burris would soon go down for shooting himself in the leg. Pro players were showing up in arrest reports with startling frequency. Michael told Goodell point blank that he didn't know anything about any dogfighting. And just like Arthur Blank, the commissioner took Michael at his word. But the lies were exhausting and they kept piling up. Meanwhile, federal agents were building their case against Michael. They examined the badly mutilated dogs and they charged him with conspiring to operate a dogfighting business and doing it across state lines. Tony Taylor and two other of Michael's friends also went down but their names faded from public view. Not Michael Vick, his name was still out there. No longer for being the most famous quarterback in the NFL, now he was the face of unspeakable cruelty and brutality. This was one onslaught that wouldn't be so easy to outrun. Michael Vick could hardly move. The man who escaped from opposing linebackers with ease stood motionless in Judge Henry E. Hudson's Richmond, Virginia courtroom. 23 months. His sentence was longer than anyone else in his crew, longer than what the prosecution was asking for. Was this judge for real? Mike knew it was all over once the boys flipped. Tony Taylor and two other of Michael's friends They all pled guilty and outed Michael as the one who bankrolled the operation. Bad news kennels wouldn't exist without his money. Pleading ignorance was no longer an option. The NFL suspended him indefinitely. The Falcons wanted their money back, $20 million in bonuses to be exact. That hurt Michael the most. The Falcons were experiencing their best run in franchise history thanks to him and now they wanted to take it all away. Then there was Kiafa. The kids, his mom, his aunt. Michael didn't want any of them to go back to the projects. The day Michael turned himself in was the worst day of his life. Giafa was crying on the bed, shaking in distress. His oldest daughter wouldn't stop with the questions. The ride from Hampton to the Richmond courthouse was the most agonizing 45 miles of Michael's life. Babe, let's go back, Kiafa told him. Let's run away. But there was no more running. Michael had no fight left in him. This was all his fault. Michael blamed himself for the pain that he was causing his family. The first days at Leavenworth Prison in Kansas were miserable. Michael was in pure survival mode, cockroaches on the floor, probably more edible than the slop they passed around for food sordid acts of violence that he could never bear to talk about outside of these cinder blocks and now today on january 23rd 2008 one of the inmates was challenging him to a fistfight in the middle of a basketball game michael didn't care anymore he wasn't going to be disrespected like that his mind raced he was under center at the super bowl he was at lambeau field he was playing in the nfc championship game three years ago today his head was spinning he wasn't eating or sleeping. He was delirious. Inmate, number 33765-183. That's who he was. Michael charged forward, swinging his fists right in this motherfucker's face. He was surrounded by other inmates reaching out at him, pulling them away, and he landed a couple of right hooks. Michael just wanted to stick to himself, and that wasn't hard to do. He'd always been a close person, never letting anybody see it all. The confines of prison reminded him of the streets where he grew up. Michael knew how to handle himself. He started cleaning toilets in the middle of the night, staying up until sunrise as a way to pass the time. And then he would sleep until noon, work out, read books, write letters, rinse and repeat. Michael received hundreds of letters each day. Almost all of them were positive. Do the time, one letter read. Don't let the time do you. For the first time in a long time, Michael Vick felt like he was in control of what would happen next. You either ball, jail or die. Five hundred and forty eight days later, a financially immorally bankrupt Michael Vick was released from Leavenworth Federal Prison. Some would argue that's not a lot of time for a man who routinely oversaw dogs hanged, beaten, electrocuted and shot. According to Michael Vick, however, it was enough time to plot a redemptive second act. The NFL was easily convinced. Just months after he became a free man, NFL commissioner Roger Goodell conditionally lifted Michael's suspension from the league, and the Philadelphia Eagles signed him as Donovan McNabb's backup quarterback. Within a few years, Michael Vick was back to starting quarterback and was once again pulling down millions of dollars, and not just from his lucrative NFL salary. Michael acknowledges his past mistakes, a spokeswoman for Nike wrote in 2011, defending the company's decision to sign Michael to an endorsement deal. We do not condone those actions, but we support the positive changes he has made to better himself off the field. More than 10 years later, football continues to support those positive changes. Once, the most disgraced player in the NFL, aside from perhaps OJ Simpson, Michael Vick is five years into his tenure as an analyst for Fox Sports. People think I'm a bad person, he told the New York Post in 2021. But I'm not bad. Michael Vick's career is good, it's alive, it's well. So is his fame and fortune. But as for his reputation, game over. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast. because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show, guys.